Welcome to the Farcast. Over 200 episodes and still going strong, bringing you experts and insiders to help you navigate the investing landscape. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, the 16th day, the 16th day of June. Somewhere in here, we've got about two weeks left to the end of the second quarter and half of 2022 will be over with. And from Washington, D.C., I say to the first half, don't let the door hit you in the ass. We will not miss you at all. First half of 2022. Federal Reserve yesterday raised rates 75 basis points, its largest rate hike in, oh, a decade or so, maybe a bit more. And markets reacted very positively uh, until they didn't, until they didn't. They thought about that for a minute, I guess. Rates went a good deal higher, and the forecast now for Fed funds rates uh, are is over 4% for Fed funds rates. And if you do a little napkin math, which I suggest you give a try and figure out that the Fed funds, which are the shortest overnight rates, will probably be lower than the two-year treasury. And the typical spread between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury is two full percentage points. Then you're looking at a 6% 10-year treasury in a normalized curve or higher uh, in the next 12 months. And when you look at those sorts of yields and those sorts of costs of money, interest rates are just another way to say this is the price of money. This is what it costs to borrow money. That has a real effect on profit margins for S&P 500 companies. And I think at some point in the future, you'll begin to see analysts' estimates come down a bit. We've seen wage inflation. And as companies pay more, that means that they've got to, of course, Uh, take that money uh, out of some of those profits, pass along some higher prices there. And then if they have interest costs, those will be higher too. So uh, a a little bit more tepid stock outlook this morning. And it looks like we're giving up everything that we picked up yesterday. It was a good rally yesterday. And today, uh, futures are a good deal lower. What does it mean? How do you invest we go to one of our smartest friends on Wall Street and your favorite, Jim Labenthal from Sarity Partners, a CNBC contributor, a great friend, a smart man, a wise man, an American patriot. Hey, Jim, welcome back to the Farcast. Michael, delighted to be on with you, especially in turbulent times. Hopefully we can give some cogent advice to our listeners. Well, I hope so, Jim. What are you telling clients in here? What does this mean to you? Let's let's start there. Let's not go to clients quite yet. What does all of this mean to you? How do you parse it out and make sense of it? Well, really big picture. Um, I think we're dealing with the after effects of the pandemic. And that may sound trite to say, but let me go a little deeper. I think there's a short-term effect, which is negative, and a long-term effect, which is going to be um, overwhelmingly positive. The short-term effect is that Supply chains got ridiculously out of whack. Um, We gave too much stimulus to the economy, which Michael, you and I have discussed this before. That was the right mistake to make. It was, uh, we're paying the price of it now, but it was a better mistake to make than not being generous enough with people who were uh, through no fault of their own cast out of their jobs. But this has come together uh, in the short term to create really breathtaking inflation. 
Um, and that's a problem. That's a problem that's being dealt with right now by the Fed and it's being felt in the markets. The long-term positive effect is the supply chain onshoring. And I know I speak to you about this just about every time we're on, but the amount of corporate capital expenditure that's about to go on, which has started, frankly, in the form of semiconductor plants being built here in the US, in the form of automobile plants being built here in the US, rare earth element mines, lithium uh, evaporation uh, uh, ponds, all sorts of things like this that for the next several years are going to be a very positive force for the economy. There's a, there's a multiplier effect when a dollar is spent on corporate capex. There's materials that need to be brought up from the ground. They need to be transported. They need to be constructed. Architects need to be used. Jobs are created. I won't go on and on, but um, this positive after effect is a long-term effect that should be taking hold after we get through what the Fed is doing. You know, it worries me a little though, Jim. I wonder, does it worry you? Because every economics professor I ever had successfully convinced me that protectionism was not a good thing long-term and that there was a more efficient market in the global markets and that you should seek out those markets and have your economic efficiencies, right? So if you can if you can outsource it cheaper than you can produce it, you do that. And then what we found, of course, was we lose control, don't we? We lose control in the pandemic when we need stuff from other people that we can't get and we don't like that, even though that cycle will probably smooth itself out over time. And we will return to that period where foreign markets will be able to produce some of those goods uh, still at a good deal lower expense, then we're going to be able to produce them here. And aren't we just going through all of these machinations to develop and have our own sourcing in-house to ultimately say, eh, I'm still going to import it from Korea as soon as they can get it to me more cheaply? Um, yes, but <laughs> that cycle that you just <laughs> described is likely to play out over decades. What I think we're seeing right now First off, you're absolutely right. From the academic point of view, um, uh, globalization is supposed to work. From the practical point of view, over the last several years, several years, we've seen that it hasn't worked. We've seen that um, certain countries have been belligerent to us in their trade policies. Some of them are belligerent just in terms of uh, military hostility as well. And so because of that, we're not willing to get our rare earth elements, critical commodities for the uh, digital economy. We're not willing to get those anymore from China. We're not willing to get oil or titanium or platinum and palladium from Russia. Um, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Now, I think back to 30 years ago, I'm going to blow everybody's mind, uh, to Ross Perot in the 1992 election, uh, who said, you hear that great whooshing sound, everybody? That's jobs moving overseas. He's absolutely right. That was the early stages of, of globalization, which gutted the middle class here in the US. We can talk about the morality or the intellectual purity of the demise of globalization, but the fact is it's happening. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna bring jobs back here, good middle paying jobs back here to the US. Yes, we have a labor problem here. And, we have a uh, huge that's, labor problem here. Yeah, but you know what? That's gonna be taken care of in the form of labor getting redirected from those industries where it is not needed, like Coinbase, like Peloton, like Carvana, to those industries where it is needed, namely the building out of this uh, middle class, rebuilding out of this middle class America. But just to sum up your question, 
you, the cycle that you just described is absolutely accurate, but its periodicity is measured in decades. I think, Jim, uh, I've watched uh, as uh, Wapner has been fighting with you a lot on, on CNBC. Now, he likes to fight with you. I said to Mark uh, Haynes uh, years ago, we were on and he said, now, look, he said, I don't I don't mean to give you a hard time, but and he went into something and I said, well, the first statement isn't true, but I'll answer your second statement. And he says, what do you what do you mean? The first statement isn't true. I said that you said you didn't mean to give me a hard time. You absolutely enjoy giving me a hard time. And Haynes burst out laughing. I mean, really just kind of lost it uh, live on TV. And he said, I do. I really do enjoy giving you a hard time. Now, will you answer my question, please? Uh, uh, so there is some sport in all of this, as you and I know. Uh, but but wh wh why why you you feel like you might be back on your heels every time you're uh, you're on the set? Why is why is he picking on you here, buddy? Well, listen, I I love your setup there, and uh, you know at this stage of my life, I know that um, I quite often wear my heart on my sleeve, and so it makes me an inviting target. I I I don't <laughs> uh, cry about that. I move on. Um, listen, the reason that he's going at me is because right now I'm wrong. Right. The, the market has gone decidedly against me with my bullishness. Um, and this is a time that one has to decide, is one a short term investor or a long term investor? I'll tell you bluntly, I haven't had success in my life being a short term investor. I don't I'm know anyone old. who has. Well, yeah, boy, if you listen to a lot of people on CNBC, it sounds like they are we're not allowed to say that, I don't think. But <laughs> but 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 I have we're not allowed to say that. And we're not even uh, we should not even mention Weiss's name. But I've never known I've never known anyone who's been able to sit and day trade and do uh, all of this short term stuff. I've made my money as a long term investor and I've learned that what these stock splits can do and dividends over time and holding and not paying taxes and not trading and not trying to figure out exactly when I need to get in and exactly when I need to get out. If it represents a good value and I can see that the company is executing and increasing market share and making profits, I want to buy that company and leave it alone. And I will not listen to this short term nonsense, panicky noise, which is why I like Claymenthal so much. But 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 more to the point, Jim, as a long-term investor, how are you getting through this? You were bullish, uh, more bullish. Are you still as bullish? How do you feel? Uh, before I answer the question, folks, I got to tell you, this is classic Michael Farr. If you don't recognize it, that's his incredible generosity of spirit and soul to try to make me feel better. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Dude, Look, I'm taking... you're a long-term investor. You go through periods like this. Well, that's exactly short term right. opinion. Look, when I get a short term opinion wrong, it doesn't mean that I've changed my portfolio 16 times. Right. We know that the right thing to do is to stay in the market and not try to time corrections or bear markets. The reason is, is because you are far more likely to get it wrong than right. Yes. And because and because of that, you're far more likely to be out of the market at the exact wrong time when things turn around and start rallying. So listen, folks, right now, if you've been following me on TV, you know, like I'm getting punched in the face and I, it's okay. I've been here before. I've been punched in the face. I'm not saying that I like it, but I know what to do here. And it is to basically keep a firm grip on the steering wheel, have a steady foot on the gas pedal and just move forward. It's not a time to be jerking the wheel from one side to the other and having the car skidding all over the highway. It's certainly not a time to slam on the brakes and come to a dead stop. We are going somewhere in our investment life and this is just a phase to get through. Now, 
to the question of why am I optimistic? And I just explained it in terms of the long-term uh, corporate capex and what that's gonna mean for this economy. But what I'm also struck by here, really struck by, is the just incredibly loud calls for a recession right now. And folks, if you're listening to me, I'm just going to assume you've been out of your house sometime in the last, sometime this year. And I ask rhetorically, you can answer it yourself. Uh, does this look like an economy that's in recession to you? Go out to eat, go travel, get in your car and go on a highway, um, go to an airport, try to get a hotel room. Does this look like an economy that's in a recession? It doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. The economic statistics don't back it up. When you look at uh, the labor market, you know, jobless claims down at 200,000 continuing. Uh, the ISM surveys, surveys well above 50, which is expansionary. So the evidence isn't there except for one thing. And Michael, this is important, okay? We darn well may be talking ourselves into a recession. Absolutely. It, it Absolutely. happens. And what I mean by that is when you see Jamie Dimon talking about the hurricane, when you, when you hear Elon Musk talking about the super bad feeling, these are all things that are on the come. You know, they're not here now. They're talking about things that might happen. But because these voices are loud and continue to say it, they're starting to have an effect on corporate mentality of, hey, maybe we shouldn't hire as many people. Um, they're starting to have effects on consumers of, hey, maybe we shouldn't be spending as much. Folks, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I'm well aware of the negatives out there. I put gas in my car, too. But at the end of the day, the biggest positive is that people are employed. As long as people are employed, they're going to consume. It doesn't actually matter if they're spending more on gas and food because that's part of the economy. It's part of the virtuous recycling of $1 that gets out of a wallet into a company's cash register that they use to pay a clerk who then goes out and spends another dollar. Um, what I worry about, though, is that virtuous cycle being broken by the overall sentiment, which is just overwhelmingly negative. But the point that I'm driving at is that sometimes the best analysis isn't going to give you the right answer. Things actually look really good, except for this sentiment issue, which is starting to affect. All right, I'll leave it there, Michael. Well, Thank I you for letting me go on and on, by the way. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Labenthal and I have done this for a lot of years, and I assure you we have been in, in each other's chairs over the years uh, where I get things wrong. And, and, and you know, you, you say, geez, uh, I got it wrong. I made a strong case. And that never feels particularly good at the moment. But really, how much difference has that made to my portfolio? How many, how many big bets did I actually make? I don't make big bets. I have a diversified portfolio. My average hold is six years. My turnover is 15% a year. Yes, I, I talk about things in some of the trades that we'll try to make from time to time on television. And I'll mention names that I do like. And indeed, I think they represent pretty good value for the long time. A lot of the time, the hell that I catch on television is because I am a long-term investor. Jim, final advice. Give me two words for Fred and Ethel. We got to go. Yeah. Stay invested, folks. I know it's hard right now. Man, I know that's like that's like steering into the into the skid, but um, it is the right thing to do. You know, Michael is giving me a lot of um, compliments about my intelligence. I'm not sure that's true or not, but I, but what oh, I, I am, I got you got a resume to prove it too. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, 
<laughs> you want to pull out the GPA? Shall we talk? I mean, let, you know, let, no. uh, this is one of the smartest guys we talked to. Most important point here is there's wisdom from Michael Farr, and it's wisdom that comes from experience. Uh, going back to a analogy I said a minute ago, I've been punched in the face before, folks. It's never fun, never fun, but I know what to do here. Just stick it out. Selling at this level is likely to be just a terrible mistake. I'll leave it there. Right. Don't be that guy is the advice from Labenthal. Don't be that guy. Jim Labenthal, a partner at Serity Partners, uh, one of the smartest, nicest guys we know, a contributor on CNBC. Thank you so much, Jim. We're going to be Great back to with Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress coming up next. What's going on in politics and why is President Biden attacking those nice people over at ExxonMobil? Please stay with us. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining us now, as he does so generously every week, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, also the chief senior political strategist on the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Michael. Great as always to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're here, Dan. Lots going on in Washington. We have these January 6th hearings coming out on television. We have an angry President Biden here in Washington, and he's directing his anger all over the place. He seems to be reluctant to do a uh, house cleaning in terms of staff inside the White House, though the chief of staff apparently has his head well on the chopping, chopping block right now. President Biden, very, very loyal to senior staffers. Long time, a lot of political people, people who have been in office and worked in various roles in government and nowhere else for a lot of their careers. You see this with a lot of established position, politicians as they as they come. Was a guns bill out there, Dan? And uh, we have this uh, uh, bipartisan uh, innovation act, which means more spending that might be getting through committee. So where would you mm -hmm. like to start, my friend? Well, why don't we just do the quick house cleaning on the Hill real quick. Uh, guns, uh, looks like we're getting to the finish line. A deal there to expand the background checks to include juvenile records. Uh, agreement on spending for a significant amount of money, I think $7 billion or more on mental health programs. Uh, there's been some hangups, though, on both the creation of red flag laws. Uh, there will be support for states to do that. Republicans want to make sure that if a state doesn't create a red flag law, that those resources can still go to other violence prevention programs. Uh, and then finally, uh, a big thing for Senator Cinema and a big part of this deal has been to close the domestic partner loophole. Uh, if you're not married, for example, it's harder to say that your uh, partner or boyfriend or girlfriend uh, is, is being dangerous with their firearms. They want to close that loophole, but disagreement on a time limit such that a, uh, a former lover couldn't uh, suddenly uh, turn against you and, and accuse you of something far down the road. Uh, Dan, this looks like it will get through. It does look like it's going to get through because it's got 10 Republican senators supporting this process. It's it's true compromise, but it's filibuster proof on paper. Uh, it looks like it may even get some additional Republican senators. Uh, no one's going to get everything they want. Uh, some are going to have to vote for things they wouldn't have liked, but that's compromise. And it's been a long time since we've seen that happen, but that's what it looks like. 
we're really discussing the responsibilities to and from former lovers uh, in this bill. There is a bit of that, yeah, because of domestic violence and gun violence. Huh. Okay. Um, I have to go. I have to go through that long list of, well, at least two or three, probably. If I go back through my college years, it wasn't for lack of trying, ladies and gentlemen. wasn't for lack of trying. It was just a lot of lack of success. Dan, uh, President Biden has seen. Dan's laughing, ladies and gentlemen. There, and I assure you, he's not <laughs> laughing with me. He's laughing at me. Uh, uh, President Biden does seem to be angry now. Right. Yes. Uh, talk about the anger, because anger seems to be one of those things that comes when the world is really. Un- well, this is, I think, a a, a, pre- a presidency that's truly in one of its more bogged down moments. If you look at presidencies, the uh, the inflation picture is not subsiding. A 75 percent basis point hike from the Fed uh, has sentiment changing the sense of a looming recession, uh, what this will do to the economy and his presidency. And also you see on energy prices where, uh, look, there's no good answer for what's uh, happening right now. A lot of it has to do with refinery capacity, infrastructure, all the kinds of things that a president really has little control over, but 100% of the blame. Uh, and that's where he finds himself right now. And so you see that that letter to the oil companies, or uh, you hear really, you know, stupid ideas, frankly, like windfall taxes or things like that uh, being bandied about. But uh, no, you, you have this administration feeling bogged down, trapped by events, uh, you saw the the sense of progress they felt on foreign policy, what they've done to keep uh, the Europeans together, even though things appear to be bogging down in Ukraine. Right. Uh, this is it's a period of frustration, and what foreign successes they are don't matter much to the domestic politics. Labenthal and I were talking before we came on about Exxon and the president's ire towards Exxon, and. Have they really been all of that profitable? And what about their tough years? Well, out of the last 10, Exxon has had a, a one bad year, really. They've had one bad year out of the last 10. And, you know, uh, Labenthal said, well, you know, maybe the president has a point. And, and I argued with him and he, Jim's been argued with so much by so many lately that he started to say, no, I'm not trying to pick a fight, Michael. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and I never fight with Jim. We, di- we do discuss things. Um, uh, even things on which we we disagree, and we might disagree entirely, and yet we can have a very pleasant discussion. And I'll say I'll leave that discussion saying, you know, that is one smart guy, and he might be right. I don't think so, but I'll certainly tell him if I was wrong. And we go back and forth like that. And I always learn whenever I talk to him, as I do when I get to talk to you. But uh, folks, it's the job of a corporation to make profits. They're not there to save the world. I've had folks, you know, who come in to interview at Farm Miller and Washington, and they want to talk about our nobility of purpose, uh, our higher goals and everything else. And and we are an ethical, honorable company. And we have never had a uh, we've never had a compliance um, uh, cited for any compliance violation in, in, in the firm's history. I'm very proud of that. And yet I'd be I'm very clear. We are here to serve our clients and to make money for this company and to make money for this company. If you want to do if you want to do not for profit work, I can show you I will drive you drive you myself to the Red Cross. The Red Cross is a few blocks away. They are not there to make money. We are here to make money for ourselves and for our clients. That's what we do. That's what Exxon's supposed to do. And I don't know how you'd feel if 
all of a sudden the government came back to you and said, you know what, Dan Mahaffey, you really made too much money over the past five years. And uh, that's just not right. What, 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 what would you, wouldn't, wouldn't you look up and say, pardon me, excuse me, what's not right? Are you going to pay my bills for me? I mean, this is, right. uh, this is free enterprise and this is capitalism. And I'm sorry if they made money, but he would also be attacking Exxon if they were a disastrous company and unable to provide fuel and other, unable to meet the needs of the infrastructure of the United States. So right, and and what happens in all this rhetoric is we forget the reality of this. Where where are the crunch points that we actually look at at energy? It's mainly refining right now when it comes to the price of gasoline and diesel. Refining is something where since if if my memory serves me correct, it has not been since the 1970s that we have built a new refinery in the United States. And that is not that is not an Exxon fault. That is not a Joe Biden fault. That is a, a complicated nest of policy and investment failures that have gotten us to this point. Except that a year ago, the Biden administration came out to harshly curtail future expansion of both energy exploration and refining and a bunch of other things on environmental issues it was a position that he was did not entirely espouse during. And to be fair, yes, to be fair, the rhetoric was there. But, but the reality, too, is that even during the friendliest times of the Trump administration, new capacity was not being built. So the, the, the problem in, in policymaking is that the, 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 the headline level about what is being done or the companies is actually very different from what we see going on in the infrastructure in the industry itself. You know, the reality that most domestic production in the US is actually exported because what we refine is what we import. Uh, factors like that, that we that don't fit on the political soundbite. And the political soundbite is we have a politician, and this is not a partisan remark, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not, I'm not bashing the president because he's a Democrat uh, at all. And you all who listened to me, I got a lot of angry email that said I was not very unkind to President Trump. I'm not doing that, folks. What I'm saying is that when you see a president in trouble and when you see those approval ratings dropping, they find people to blame left and right. And right now, the uh, current most convenient scapegoat seems to be Exxon. And uh, I, it's this is this is political nonsense. Uh, as as far it's political nonsense, I promise. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, we've got a innovation act, um, and then yeah. I want to go to the six hearings. We've got we're running out of time. Yeah. Innovation act that's been the the widespread uh, USICA endless frontiers. It's gone by different monikers. It's going through conference committee. It's it looks a spending like bill. They're going to spend money. They're going to spend money to support semiconductor industry, to work on R&D at the National Science Foundation. This is focused on high-tech competition with China, uh, but there's also some matters of trade and uh, supply chain that both uh, both parties can't agree on. So look, I think they're going to try and narrow it down to get it passed sooner. That's what it's looking like. Uh, but it will still be a big investment in those industries. It's an important argument that Labenthal and I had uh, at the beginning of his segment where he was explaining that it was very important to do these things domestically. I said it sounds like protectionism, Jim, which is economically inefficient. And, and he agreed. But folks, there is, um, there, there is a point where we need certain things for the national good to make sure we have access no matter what. Let's pick a drug and say penicillin. Uh, 
penicillin is largely manufactured overseas. Uh, we manufacture very little penicillin in the US. What if under some political conflict with China, Asia, you pick the country, they said, we're not gonna, we're gonna stop sending you penicillin and the US had some huge lag to produce penicillin, fairly vital drug that people take for granted. So there's a certain bit of, of, of production that we probably should have here in the US of sort of vital drugs and vital elements that we need for the, for the US and take a look at that. Um, uh, moving on here, the January 6th hearings continue to roll on. What do you make of those, Dan? One, I think it's interesting how they've structured them. They are nothing like a normal congressional hearing, which can be difficult to follow, uh, unwieldy. These are produced and made for a television audience, unlike any congressional hearing I've I've ever seen. Yeah, there's a, they're amazing. They're scripted, aren't they? Right. They're very tightly scripted. They're done uh, the way they are getting the information across, the way they are laying out that this was much broader than January 6th itself. Uh, the the best uh, witty comment I hear going around about it right now is that it is, in fact, very one-sided because all the star witnesses are from the Trump administration. Uh, you, you know, the, 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 the words of Attorney General Barr, hardly a member of the liberal conspiracy uh, calling out the president and his inner circle and the, the group that, you know, took the reins from key officials throughout the process. And I think, too, when you hear this, uh, a reminder, too, of how people like Mike Pence, the staff, uh, the staffers on the Hill, other people who did their jobs that day in a way that kept us from a, a, a constitutional crisis. It's very interesting. And, 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 and I, I've got to say chilling to listen to the attorney general uh, attorney, former Attorney General Barr, uh, who was appointed by President Trump, uh, talk about the president becoming detached from reality during those periods. Um, this is the president of the United States, the sitting president of the United States, and the attorney general suggesting he's detached from. I mean, there's some scary stuff that I'm hearing there. I'm not making a political comment, folks. No, I'll go. I'll go out beyond this. That I don't. I don't care if you think that Ron DeSantis's vision is the best or Bernie Sanders is the best. This is above those politics and the idea that one person could derail uh, and destroy our entire de democratic republic for their ego and misperceptions of uh, their victory or failure. Dan Mahaffey is uh, the director of policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on the forecast. Thank you, Dan, so much for being with us again. Thank you, Michael. Take Ladies care. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Dr. Jay Bryson, chief economist from Wells Fargo. We are so delighted to have him. He has just published a new paper, and I think it's brilliant. When we come back, on the Farcast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us.
That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. Thanks so much for being with us this week. Terrific segment one with Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, talking about what's going on in Washington. And now, one of uh, your Farcast fan favorites. Back with us once again, Dr. Jay Bryson, who is the chief economist for Wells Fargo, has worked on the Federal Reserve uh, in Washington and one of the smartest guys we've talked to. Spent a lot of time on CNBC yesterday, uh, pre-Fed announcement, explaining what was going on, uh, what was going to happen. He got it right. Terrific interview. And then yesterday uh, also uh, published a paper uh, U.S. recession in 2023 now seems more likely than not. Uh, a copy of this uh, will be available. Uh, we will forward you the link. Just email hjennings at farmiller.com, hjennings at farmiller.com, and he will send you a copy to the link of Dr. Bryson's most recent report, actually out today. And it's a fabulous report. I've read it three times. I've learned a lot. Jay, welcome back to the Farcast. Well, thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, let's go right there uh, first. U.S. recession now seems more likely than not, Jay? Yeah, I think so, Michael. I mean, the game changer for us. So, you know, where we were before was our base case was you probably get a soft landing. Maybe it's a little bumpy. Right. Um, and, you know, 40 percent chance of recession. I would flip that around now. Um, and the, the game changer for us was the higher than expected print that we got in CPI inflation about a week ago or so. This is for the, the May CPI. Um, that was a game changer because it really kind of shows that inflation is starting to become more entrenched in the economy and the Fed is going, has a lot more work to do uh, ahead of it to try to wring that inflation out of the economy. That means higher interest rates. And with higher interest rates, that probably causes a, a downturn, you know, sometime early next year. And if you look at that kind of inflation and what maybe caused the surprise, and I don't want to get too in the weeds wonky here, but if you, you look at inflation as input costs, certainly uh, were on the rise, but it's also expectations for inflation. People expect that prices are going up and that gets to be a bit self-fulfilling. When you were working at the central bank uh, from, your, from, from, from those insider days, how do they weigh that information? How as an economist now do you weigh that information when you see a CPI print like that? So inflation expectations, Michael, as you just pointed out, are very, very important. And the Fed puts a lot of weight on that. I think in Chairman Powell's press conference yesterday, he kept talking about that, the importance of that. Yeah. And that was another data piece that we got recently. So the University of Michigan does a consumer uh, confidence survey. OK, and they ask a lot of questions. One of the questions that they ask is, what do you think the inflation rate will average five to 10 years from now? So it's you know really long, far out. So that's been around three percent. That jumped up to three point three percent. 
in May. Now that doesn't seem like a big increase, but that's the highest in 14 years. Yeah. And so, so why is inflation expectations important? It's important because if you think, let's pick an example, you think a car is going to be say 10% more expensive a year from now than it is today, you have a real incentive to go out and buy that car now. And if everyone's doing that, the demand for cars goes up and that pushes their prices up today. Yes. So that that mere act of just thinking you're going to have higher inflation can often lead to higher inflation. Right. Uh, and some of that, too, pulls forward some of that demand, too, which could cause things to ease in the future, I guess, a bit of right. disruption. Yep. Um, so it, it, what what do you think that uh, the Fed right now or Jay Powell is getting wrong? Everybody's talked a lot about what they should have done and how they should have acted earlier and how they misjudged this. All right. Uh, it, but let's look forward. You're chairman of the Fed today, uh, Jay Bryson. We're just going to switch J's. We're just going to switch J's here. Uh, we've got a new Dr. J. Uh, and, and, and by the way, uh, our Dr. J, ladies and gentlemen, actually is a Dr. J. He's an economist. Uh, Not uh, a basketball player, but a, a, a PhD economist. So. Jerome, uh, the, yes, the other, the other, the other is uh, lawyer Jay. Jay Powell is a lawyer, not an economist by training. Though, boy, if you listened to him yesterday, I thought he did a beautiful, brilliant job with that press conference. I mean, that was as good as I've seen any Fed chair do in those interviews. So, uh, it, it, what would you do differently? What, what, what are they getting wrong now, or have they got it right? Well, you know, it's hard to, I, I think what they're probably going to get wrong is they're probably going to end up over tightening, um, you know, in the sense of they're really trying to wring inflation out of the economy. And I think you probably need to do that. I mean, none of us want to go back to, to the, the late 1970s, um, you know, with that sort of episode that we had uh, back then. Uh, but I think what they're going to end up doing is the Fed has done this, you know, a number of times now is... Um, you know, inflation is kind of a lagging sort of indicator. Yes. Um, right. And um, so by acting really aggressively now and con you know, continuing to act really aggressively now, I think what you're going to get is you're going to get a real weakening in the economy. You're going to get a recession. And that's where you're going to, you know, it's going to go into it a little bit of a ditch. How much can the Fed actually affect things that are being caused by supply chain issues? I mean, they seem to be attacking core inflation. And this is a little wonky. But, you know, ladies and gentlemen, they always want to talk about CPI excluding food and energy. And every recession I've ever been through, uh, every American looks up and goes, why in the hell would you exclude? If I didn't, if I could exclude food and energy, I wouldn't be having a problem here. It's food and energy that are killing me. And they're not going after those numbers really by increasing interest rates here. They're more attacking core. Do they have the tools to actually affect supply chain, you know, commodity shortages out of the Ukraine or disruptions coming out of China or what else? The short answer is no. I mean, they don't have the ability to do that, right? They, they can't produce more semiconductor chips. They can't grow more wheat. They can't pump more oil. And, you know, you talked about Chair Powell's press conference yesterday, and he talked about core inflation there. And the reason they focus on the core is because it's a better predictor of where inflation is going to be, say, a year from now. Food and energy prices can move all up and down. They're very, very volatile. The core kind of gives you an underlying 
underlying sense of the trend. The problem with that, though, is what do people... Uh, what do the people see every week? They see gasoline prices. They see food prices. That's and that's helping them form their inflation expectations. Yes. And so you know, at the end of the day, that overall rate of inflation is very, very important. But to get back to your original question, Michael, there's a lot of stuff that they can't affect there. Again, they can't they can't grow wheat. They can't pump uh, more oil. What they can do is affect demand which then affects, you know, shows up in the core. It's a little bit, I heard a lot yesterday, the chemotherapy analogy that they're going to try and kill part of the disease without killing the patient. And that really is the, whether we go into recession or not, whether they get this right. Um, but a lot of these, a lot of these costs could be rather persistent for, for a while. If they go too far, you said that the Fed could go too far. And I agree with that. Um, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, when I say I agree with it, I mean, uh, that it really doesn't it, that that doesn't matter at all uh, that Jay Bryson said it to start out with. That matters a lot. I mean, he's the Ph.D. economist who worked at the Fed and head of Wells Fargo and the big damn deal bank here. So uh, and as you know, he's a, a great friend of mine whom I admire enormously. When the Fed gets this wrong, how how far could they get it wrong? What do they really get wrong when we say they get it wrong, Jay? Well, they, you know, they raise interest rates, you know, too much. And so the way, so what happens is um, by raising interest rates, um, you know, so right now look at the mortgage rate, right? It's a 30 year fixed mortgage, it's over 6%. So How's that happen that quickly? I mean, everybody's just sort of projecting out a year and taking rates up. I mean, that was a huge jump in mortgage rates. Well, yeah, and it's based off in part or in large part, where the yield on the 10-year treasury is. And that has really shot up significantly over the last you know, few weeks here. And then th that's, that's even, so, this, so this is a 30-year rate mortgage, right? If you're a mortgage lender um, or you're an investor who buys mortgage-backed securities, you know, you're on the hook for the next 30 years. And right now you really don't know where inflation is going to be. And so you're building in all sorts of risk premia into that, into that rate. Yep. And so, you know, what? so what's, that's going to really affect the housing market. I mean, we're looking for housing starts next year to be 15 or so percent below where they're going to be this year. That exerts a, you know, a negative influence on the economy. Um, interest rates for cars and other durable sorts of products, those things are all going up. Um, that's going to affect spending on, on those. We think those, you're looking at negative growth rates in terms of, of durable spending. And I understand that the labor market's really strong right now, right? But we are already seeing signs that businesses are starting to lay people off. The initial jobless claims numbers are ticking up. You know, you see signs, you see the Teslas of the world and the Twitters and, you know, other companies saying that they're going to cut their staff by 10%. And so as those job losses start to mount um, and people start to lose their jobs, they have less money to spend and the economy just kind of spirals down from there. And yet you're calling for a mild recession. I mean, hearing you describe those things, housing has a multiplier effect, kind of. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big deal. And we know about the car prices, the everything else, the affordability. We know about shelter costs, which is basically rent, ladies and gentlemen, is what I'm talking about there. Uh, that that are higher, and those are persistent costs. Those 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 don't 
those are longer cycle to roll through. You can, you don't just increase housing starts really quickly when you want to. Why why when I hear that it, it sounds a little more serious? How does that translate into just a, a two quarter recession? So you get the really nasty recessions. And, and you know, I think your listeners will, you know, most of your listeners will remember this, the financial crisis of 2008, yes. right? Yes. It's a balance sheet sort of problem. And so if you go back to 2006, 2008, what was the housing, the, the household sector was very over leveraged because of the housing bubble, right? Yes. Everybody was going out and getting a mortgage and et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that happened back then was the banks were all levered up as well. Okay. And so you had this really big financial crisis, which caused a very deep downturn. What's different this time, and, and Michael, I'm knocking on wood here. Okay. What's different this time is that the household sector is not nearly as levered as where they were 15 years ago. As a matter of fact, if you look at household debt as a percent of income, measure of leverage, we're back to where we were before the housing bubble started to inflate. The banking system is the best capitalized it's been in my working life, and that's face it is a very long time, right? So, um, you know, I don't think you're going to be looking at you know, bank failures left and right, like we did back in 2006 to 2008. So what I'm thinking here is this recession that I think we're going to have, I think it's going to look and smell kind of like 1990-91, if people remember back to then. And that was a recession that lasted two or three quarters, peak the trough decline in real GDP was about one and a half percent. And to put that in perspective, if you look at the, the, you know, the, the global financial crisis, peak to trough decline in GDP back then was about 4%. Right. That's a deep percent, right? right. Um, so knowing what I know now, that's what I would tell you I think we're looking at. Okay. So uh, where are uh, any green shoots for our listeners? Uh, to, uh, what do we do to get them um, out from underneath their desks? Uh, they're, they're going to hold up, you know, in a closet uh, without any windows right now uh, and, and, and hunker down, you know, with, with a bottle of uh, scotch. We don't want them doing that. Uh, tell us, <laughs> my desk is a lot roomier under my desk than uh, I've known, uh, Jay, you know, with the market falling and everything I've crawled under here. There's, there's, there's a lot of room, plenty of room for me in the bottle of scotch. Uh, so, uh, uh, Jay, how do we get through these things? What should our listeners be thinking about to endure a difficult period like this? Well, yeah, I think it's going to be difficult for the next, you know, let's call it year or so. But, I mean, eventually what happens here is, um, you know, as as the economy goes into recession, typically what happens is so the inflation rate should start to come down. Yes. I mean, we definitely saw that right back in the 70s, the you know, the recessions there um, in the early 1980s recession. And that means that prices stop going up. It doesn't necessarily mean the prices come down, though they may. But- no, no. Actually, they continue to go up. They just don't go up at the same sort of rate. Yes. You know, right now, we're looking at an inflation rate close to 9%. Um, And so, and so, you know, it falls back to three or even, you know, somewhere in that sort of vicinity. Okay, so what happens is, because we don't think it's going to be a really, really deep recession, it's not like the labor market's going to completely fall apart. The unemployment rate will come up for sure. Right. 
but, you know, people who continue to work will continue to make income. Uh, and, and as inflation comes down, what happens is so what's happening right now, because of high inflation, purchasing power is getting eroded. Yes. Uh, your wages aren't going up as fast as prices are right now. OK, a right. year from now or so, it should be the reverse. Right. Prices will start to de uh, come down or de you know, price increases will, will start to come down. And so real income will start to stabilize and start to go back up. People will start to spend again. The Fed will finally take its foot off the accelerator, interest rates. And, and the, not only will the Fed start cutting rates by, let's say, the end of next year, the market will start to anticipate that well in advance. So, you know, where we th you know, we still think that, you know, the, the two year uh, Treasury security that still is going to rise in the next few months, the 10 right. years. But a year from now, as the market starts to anticipate the Fed starting to cut, those rates will be coming down. And so it starts to, it starts to put in the green shoots of, of a housing market recovery. It starts to put in the green shoots of um, a durable good spending recovery. Right. Right. And so all these things will work automatically like they always do in every business cycle. And it plants the it plants the seeds of the next, you know, kind of recovery. But I think the next year or so is going to be challenging. Well, uh, the expansion can't begin until the contraction is complete. And we'll walk through this and we will take your good advice. Dr. Jay Bryson is the chief economist at Wells Fargo. He worked for the Federal Reserve. He was a uh, professor uh, of economics as well. And uh, as you can hear, one of the smartest, nicest guys we ever get to talk to. Thank you so much, Jay, for being with us again. Well, thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, uh, st stay underneath that desk for a little bit or jump into that foxhole or whatever, you know. So A, a little while we're going to be careful, uh, but, you know, we're going to keep contributing to our 401ks. We're buying stocks a lot cheaper than we were uh, at any point in the past year. Uh, and we're going to be buying more shares and you just stay steady and you'll get through these times. Emotion is the foe of the investor and emotional decisions, I promise, will take you to the wrong place most every time. Uh, we'll get through it and we'll get through it because we get to talk to really smart people like you. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another forecast. We will be back again next week as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world in Washington, D.C. For the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Stay safe out there and give us a call if we can help in any way. Have a great weekend. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Farcast. Thanks to Michael's guest, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Chief Economist from Wells Fargo, Dr. Jay Bryson. Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not office employees or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. 
any mention of the specific security should not be construed as a recommendation by ourselves. And please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help and and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the forecast with friends and colleagues. Go beyond the headlines each week with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Far Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member at FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Hightower Advisors LLC, Farm Miller in Washington, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to entity-entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.